I suppose we're going to talk about that during the show, so maybe we won't do that hmm. either. Also, let me chew this pizza. <laughs> this cold pizza. I thought we were doing PTI. I didn't think we were doing cold pizza. It's a good joke, but I can't respond because I'm actually chewing the pizza. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the twice-weekly show about the largest division of college football. And we welcome you to podcast number 258, the one with Mass Hysteria. It's the podcast for November 11th, 2019. First of all, thank you to everyone who has served this great country of ours. Uh, I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Keith McMillan, a former player and longtime co-host. Eater of pizza. I think we both uh, probably consider ourselves eaters of pizza, but uh, definitely a, uh, a crazy weekend in which also kind of Keith and I flipped roles. Keith was out at a game. I was uh, on the desk watching uh, things unfold on screens and that sort of thing. We had, uh, you know, the, uh, the crazy comeback in Pella, Iowa. We had the uh, nearly football after dark up in Spokane, Washington. We had the shocker to start the day down in uh, Troy, New York. And of course, a bunch of teams, like a bunch of teams. We have 21 teams in the NCAA playoffs. So for those of you who weren't on the website on Saturday or that sort of thing, here are the teams that are now in the NCAA playoffs. We'll go quickly because there's a lot of them. Mary Harden Baylor, Muhlenberg, Wheaton, Western New England, SUNY Maritime, Brockport, Hanover, Union, Delaware Valley, Framingham State, Hope, St. John's, Aurora, Wabash, Salisbury, Linfield, Mount Union, Bridgewater, Case Western Reserve, Chapman, and Martin Luther. And I guess I only had to breathe twice to get through that list. Yeah, and I think the big takeaway from that, Pat, is that's 21. There would be six more clinched in week 11 here this weekend coming up. That's 27 of the 32 spots that are automatically taken. And when we get really into the nitty gritty, when you realize how many teams are left over that should have a shot at the playoffs, that they can't all fit into these five spots, that'll be the source of a lot of discussion, consternation coming up um, this week. You know, maybe we'll kick that to the Friday pod, but it's uh, it's going to be quite a situation if everyone wins on Saturday. Now, if uh, a lot of these teams are facing other good teams, and so we may have another weekend of carnage like this past weekend and it won't even matter we'll talk about uh, some of these games in which teams played their way into the conversation or into the tournament or uh, ways in which teams played themselves out coming up in just a moment but before we do that i'd like to let you know that this uh, rendition of the d3football.com around the nation podcast is sponsored by gotta have it our friends at gotta have it fanfoams.com these are the 3D logo fan foam wall signs that uh, you can see uh, and put in your dorm room, your man cave, your office, your cube on the back uh, window of your car at the tailgate. If you're in a part of the country where uh, you're tailgating still, uh, and I hope you're staying warm in lots of places. If you're like a Mary Harden Baylor fan, probably still warm enough to tailgate unencumbered. Uh, also, Mount Union, Johns Hopkins, UW-Whitewater, Lake Forest now in the mix. Uh, East Texas Baptist has a, a, a fan foam as well, and we uh, believe more of them are coming, but these are some pretty fantastic-looking pieces of construction. Yeah, I mean, I think... The coolest part is they look super official. You can take them, you know, from the house to the game, back to the house, have it in the car, have it in the RV, like however you 
choose to, to watch football, the fan foam um, can travel with you. It's light, it's durable, and uh, it just looks official. And of course, my favorite talking point is that that uh, you know these are of D3, you know, made by people who follow D3 and, and understand uh, the game on our level. If you are also, say, a fan of Army or the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy, you can find those there as well. And if we didn't mention your D3 school, because you know, I, I think we didn't mention about 241 of them, you can still get into the action uh, if you're, say, a member or uh, someone who helps run an alumni association or does marketing for a Division three school or is, you know, the person who is in charge of, uh, you know, uh, connecting with the alumni for your football program. Go to gottahabitfanfoams.com. See how you can get uh, your team into the action at uh, gottahabitfanfoams.com. Keith, almost not quite sure where to begin. It was a day in which uh, Ithaca played its way out of at-large consideration for all intents and purposes, as did Baldwin Wallace. uh, And uh, Warburg played its way into at-large consideration and and, uh, out of at least in control of its own destiny for the ARC title. But got to start with this RPI Ithaca game, because if you didn't tune in in the first you know, seven or uh, minutes or so of the game, or if you weren't paying attention by 1230 Eastern on a Saturday afternoon, this thing was basically over. RPI jumped out to a 21 nothing lead, and it was so unlikely that it was one of those where I looked at the live stats update on our scoreboard, and then I flipped over to the broadcast just to make sure, you know, that like home and away hadn't been reversed or something like that. And uh, it was it was true, and it happened. And it was 31 nothing at the break and 38-12 final. And Ithaca, just after the, you know, after starting off really strong this season, has really had the wheels fall off. Yeah, sure. I mean, we were talking a couple of weeks ago on a pod about potentially going up to this game at MetLife this this coming weekend, where the Cortica Jug game annual, one of the great uh, rivalries in D3, and and um, thinking that maybe both teams would be nine and zero and and playing for uh, undefeated season. Then we thought, okay, they lost last week. That's fine, but they'll each be playing. It'll essentially be a pool C play-in game where um, the, the team that wins will probably be on the the in the discussion for playoff contention. And uh, and now you know Ithaca's played its way out of that discussion as well with these back-to-back losses. Has to be frustrating. The Union loss, understandable. They were in that game, and uh, and Union's unbeaten and, and highly ranked. So you know you can understand that one. Uh, this one, I don't think it's quite as uh, understandable because, you know, usually after you lose, you, um, you know, you go back and reexamine everything, you buckle up. Uh, and especially if you're a pretty good team and, and you know your season is on the line, you you come out with a, with a pretty good effort. And, you know, sometimes the game happens to you and you lose 57-56 or 28-21 or whatever. But to be down 31-0 in this one, certainly shocker. And uh, that's the best RPIs look since probably almost a year ago. In uh, in that that win over Brockport in the in the playoffs, where uh, you know we knew RPI was a playoff team uh, last year, but we didn't think they were going to knock off the Golden Eagles, and and they've really have been disappointing for most of the season. But now they've got a chance to really finish strong with not only this win against Ithaca, but then another one of the great rivalry games that they'll play uh, this Saturday against Union in the Dutchman's Shoes. Yeah, actually, RPI has the uh, has the opportunity to end its season by yeah, basically eliminating Ithaca from the playoffs and de- uh, dealing a huge blow 
potentially to Union. Union obviously has clinched its automatic bid, but uh, everybody, all those 21 who we mentioned at the top of the show, still hoping to win out because it will be a big impact on their seating. You mentioned, Keith, uh, RPI last looking like this uh, last year against Brockport, also against Joe Germanario with his previous school. RPI 2-0 against Joe Germanario in their last two meetings, and Germanario is a 33 for 69 passing for 342 yards, four interceptions, and was sacked seven times in those games. That sounds like a good number of yards, right, 342, but remember, that's over two games and 70 attempts. That's less than five yards an attempt. Yeah, I'm sure he's he's ready to not see RPI again. Uh, this coming week, but the you know the crazy thing is uh, they got to turn around it and now play their rival, and they still get to write the story of their season. It's not going to end in the playoffs, but if you win this game in front of forty two thousand fans, that'll be a memory for the seniors from from Ithaca to take off into uh, whatever career they choose after football. Cortland almost did the exact same thing. They were down fourteen to three to Hartwick at the half. Uh, they were within a uh, blocked field goal of going down again in the fourth quarter. But Cortland put up uh, twenty nine of its thirty two points in the second half, including seventeen points in the fourth quarter. And they hold off Hartwick thirty two twenty one. Hartwick falls to one and eight. And it did look like for uh, for a moment that both Cortica Jug teams were going to lose on Saturday for the second consecutive week. I want to move on to the Warburg Central game, a game in which uh, Central took a gigantic lead early. Uh, they went up 42-14. to 14. I think it was even 49-14 uh, at one point. And then yep. Warburg rallies five consecutive touchdowns in regulation and scores the first touchdown in overtime. It's a game where, um, you know, I'm watching it because I have been kind of waiting all season to see Warburg against... Uh, top-notch competition and I feel like I haven't really had an opportunity to see that until this point and you know you tune into a game like that then it goes to halftime and then a bunch of other things are finishing elsewhere across the country and you know it's like it's on in the background or see a reference on Twitter and then all of a sudden like hey it's 49-28 hey it's 49-35 like back-to-back there was a, a fumbled punt snap and a big touchdown afterwards and it got really out of hand uh, for Central really quickly if they, uh, if, as they gave up that entire five-touchdown uh, advantage. It was really an epic collapse by Central to go from 49-14 at the 9-12 mark of the third quarter. So you come out of, of halftime, and they were up 42-14 at the half, score, score on an eight-play drive to start the third, and you're thinking, well, we got this thing in the bag. And then you know, Warburg gets a little drive together, puts another one together, got the the punt uh, situation that you mentioned and then all of a sudden it's a uh, 49-35 it's 49-42 they tie it with 5 minutes left teams go to overtime Warburg gets the ball first Warburg scores on a 15-yard run so it wasn't a whole lot of of um defensive you know uh resistance yeah. from central and at that point you know the ball is just rolling downhill on central and they're kind of hanging on for dear life they couldn't get out of regulation and for them to turn around in overtime score and then to decide to go for two, and then with the play they chose, and if you haven't watched it, it's embedded in the roundup on d3football.com um, on the site now. So if you check out the weekend's roundup, you can watch this YouTube video of the final play. It's one of those ones where uh, my coaching friend, I asked him what to call this. He said he, he said they called it heavy split left, but for in layman's terms, it's a type of play where they have uh, the, the line, each side of the line splits two guys out as wide receivers, and as long as they're still on the line of scrimmage, um, you can still have a legal formation. So you have three 
you know, the center and two guards, and then nobody, and, and then all of the tackles and uh, tight ends go all the way out, and then each a wide receiver lines up behind him, and so they threw the wide receiver screen, and he gets in, but he barely gets in. I mean, it's it's one of those ones where um, you know the other team might have a, a little bit of an argument. Um, the ref was right on top of it, and of course the ball crossed the plane, even though it looked like you know maybe his hip was uh, was hitting the ground right around the goal line. So an amazing finish for Central and. I just think the fact that you know the the whole thing collapsed right. I mean, it's a it's a choke job, certified all time <laughs> terrible Division three choke job. And this is not me going screaming a Smith on you. This is like this is re- legitimately how bad this was. Uh, in in the course of 20, 25 minutes of game time, you know, you give up a thirty five point lead. Your offense doesn't do anything. You can't even you know add a field goal or extend the lead at all. Right, the ball's just completely rolling downhill. Give up the touchdown first in overtime uh, and, you know, don't even hold them to a field goal. Everything has gone wrong. And then you have one chance to salvage it. They score and then they decide to go for two, which I think to me is is uh, is super, um, super gutsy. And then to get it as well uh, in the way they got it. It's, it instead becomes instead of one of the all time choke jobs and a, and a memory that, you know, will live in uh, Wartburg lore and central infamy. It becomes one of the great games in central history and this is a program that's won a stag ball that's won tons of conference championships and it's been a pretty great program you got to put this game up there with uh with one of the best in their history one of the best that we've seen all season and i'm sort of surprised you didn't lead with it over uh over rpi ethica but um just because of the 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 way the game went uh the quality of it and the, uh, the size of the league you know we see teams give up two and three touchdown leads all the time but to give up a five touchdown lead and then to still find a way to win, I thought was pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, this would be like as if Oshkosh had then uh, come back and gotten a touchdown to beat Mountain Union in that semifinal game a couple of years ago or something like that. And, and I think I just ordered, I, I was starting to write notes as things were happening. So it was kind of chronological there for a second. This is how bad it was for Central in the in the second half of this of this game, Keith. Uh, first of all, they like never got out of Warburg territory. Uh, they had a total of 37 yards uh, of offense on a uh, total of uh, seven drives, seven consecutive drives. They started on uh, the Warburg one and you know, six plays, 16 yards and a punt. They started in the 16, four plays, 11 yards and a punt. They didn't have great punting. Uh, they were super conservative about punting after the punt snap fumble. Um, and it was just kind of nuts. I was actually quite surprised that um, in their shot in overtime, having gotten the ball second, that uh, that they were able to put something together. But they did. Of course, they got the end zone. And Keith, you described the play uh, on which they won the game. And you can see it, like uh, Keith said on the website, you can also see it on Twitter. Um, but I, I just want to pull out something that uh, Jeff McMartin, the head coach of the Dutch, said. Even when overtime started, I was still planning on kicking it. But then how things shook out when they had the ball, I felt like our best shot was to do it right then and there and win the game. That decision was made when we got the ball. But then, so they uh, they had recently installed this two-point play, uh, and they were hoping to pull off a surprise at the line of scrimmage when they sent the uh, uh, the uh, lineman out wide. But they didn't get the, uh, the reaction they were expecting from the Warburg defense. And McMartin was actually trying to call timeout and could not get timeout that play went off and like you said Keith just barely got in the end zone it doesn't look great from the angle that we have I did see an angle from 
that the American Rivers Conference shot and put on their Twitter. It's from the back of the end zone. Uh, from that angle, I feel a little more confident that he actually got in. I was expecting the way that play went down uh, that he was not going to get in because he did not get the blocks in front of him that uh, he, I'm sure, really wanted. He, there's contact made with uh, with Robinson, the, uh, the guy who received the pass out around the two-yard line, and he just barely, I guess, spun around and got that ball over the plane. Yeah, I mean, it was. I think he was in, but the the, the way it happened, certainly for uh, for Wartburg's defense. If you're in the stadium watching that game, you you can from far away and remember D three is not going to have a bunch of replays on the video board with twelve angles, like when you watch NFL on Sunday or Monday night. So you're going to see this play happen one time, and you can walk out of the stadium and say, I don't know if he got in, and until you see it on Twitter, he did get in. And again, the the official was on top of it. And uh, and the celebration went off right away. And you know, unless you're a Wartburg um, person, you you could just feel for Central in that moment. Uh, I'll talk about it a little more a little later. But I just tremendous game, and for for it to for it to look like this was going to be one of the all time bad collapses, and then for them to just find the wherewithal to score eight points in overtime, uh, I, I think signifies how amazing football is. I, I mean. Central, you mentioned how dismal their offense was in the second half. They finished with 630 yards of offense. So they were going up and down the field in the in the first um, first half. You know, so the touchdown passes are from 60, 46, 31 yards out. The, the touchdown drives are 70 and, and 80 yards long. So, I mean, they're going up and down the field in the first half. Clearly some halftime adjustments were made or maybe Warburg just got their stuff together. Um, I, I just think games like that are, are ones that, the people who were there, the people who played in it, the people who coached in it, uh, the alumni, and then now us from afar will remember this one for a long time. You know, you and I make reference to 50 to 49 all the time or 50 to 50, yeah. right? And we don't even have to say who was playing in those games because as between you and I, we know exactly what happened those days. I think this one will be uh, when people in Iowa say 57, 56, that everyone will know which game they're talking about. Football after dark, uh, you know, it's been colloquially uh, referenced to talk about some of those uh, big Skyac games that we've seen uh, this season that start at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. But it was literally basically after dark in Spokane, Washington, when the game between Linfield and Whitworth was decided. Linfield winning in overtime 38-31. Keith, I know you've been to the Pine Bowl. It is a beautiful facility, nice pine trees all around. There are no lights, and that very nearly was a uh, was an issue at the end of the game, a game that started at 1.00 featured you know 767 passing yards and then went to overtime I don't know how they would have played a second overtime because from what we could see uh it was pretty hard to see Linfield and Whitworth are not next door so this is an overnight trip for Linfield and we've seen times where games have been postponed by lightning uh we see one postponed from Saturday to Monday uh at one point because uh you know the teams weren't able to play on Sunday so I think if you run out of daylight there and, and, you know, coaches say that all the time during practice, we're running out of daylight as in hurry up, let's get this done because we're, we're, you know, there's not that much practice time. Well, they're, they're literally running out of daylight and uh, may maybe would have had to extend the game the next day. And I don't think you ever like to see that because you just don't, you can't capture the same momentum, the same feeling. You don't know if, you know, one team's going to be able to execute the next day and the other one's just going to not be able to get itself back up for this game. Uh, it was cool that it ended the way it did. Not as cool for Whitworth, obviously, because uh, it had a chance to clinch a playoff spot and 
a, uh, a Northwest Conference bid or at least keep itself alive. And, uh, and Linfield is going back to the playoffs. I think that's a good news for Redlands, which beat Linfield earlier and is going to be uh, in this really murky pile of pool C teams. Um, for Redlands to have uh, Linfield remain a team that's regionally ranked, and then Chapman will also remain in those region, regional rankings, it will give them a very good shot at getting in. So yeah, that game had a lot of implications. And also just remind you that sometimes you might watch your games at Cortland State or Mary Harden Baylor at these amazing uh, facilities. There's still lots of places in D3 where it's uh, it's quaint. It's uh, you know it's a beautiful place to see a game, but you know they don't have the brand new turf and the field house and the lights that go on at you know three o'clock and keep the place illuminated till midnight. They uh, some of us are still working with uh, a little bit more limited budgets, and uh, and that would have been also a day to remember in Whitworth Linfield history uh, for different reasons if the game didn't end the way it did in overtime with. Uh, Linfield was it a pass breakup or was it an interception that that ended it on fourth down yeah it ended on a pass breakup and I can't imagine either you know how you see the ball coming out of dark jerseys against dark turf uh it's also been raining for like the second half of that game it was just like uh you know I, I remember you know I think I've it's probably been clear from for long-term podcast listeners I was a baseball player kind of similar right you have a uh, at least the ball is bright you know you have an, uh, an a possibility of seeing it coming at you but uh it is uh it's very difficult to uh, you know just see when it gets when it gets down there and i would have to have said if i had another coin toss i might have chosen to take the ball first just so i could guarantee i'd have you know 10 minutes better opportunity to see the ball that's funny you know that's not the logic that you usually think about when you're thinking about which which direction you want to go often has to do with the wind occasionally with, uh, with some other factors but Usually not. Let's let's have the ball first so we can get the daylight. Exactly. Uh, also, a game of note, which we'll quickly touch on and then move on. Uh, but it keeps uh, it puts Barry back in the driver's seat in the SAA, and it was uh, Trinity defeating Birmingham Southern twenty to ten. So Birmingham Southern's had a nice little run here over the course of October and November, uh, but that comes to an end. Uh, the Tigers hold Robert Schuford to thirty carries for one hundred and forty-four yards. Uh, and uh, Birmingham Southern misses two short field goals uh, late in the fourth quarter that could have helped to extend that game. And, you know, it puts Barry, like I said, back in the driver's seat for uh, the automatic bid and maybe makes uh, the at-large uh, question slightly better for a handful of people. Keith, you were at a game on Saturday, uh, a game between uh, Bridgewater and Randolph-Macon with the Old Dominion Athletic Conference uh, title and automatic bid on the line. And I think I'm just going to tee you up with that and let you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, talk about beautiful places to see a game. Bridgewater's field and the area around it is kind of ugly, but the campus is is pretty beautiful. The leaves were yellow, and um, you know, it looked, it looked just like the front of a brochure when you get to campus. Um, and it was a huge game in Bridgewater history. And, and what I think is funny is um, Bridgewater for a long time was the conference doormat. And I mean, for, for a long time, from 1926, when they started football all the way to 2000 or 99, I think 2000 was the first time they won a conference championship besides 1980. They'd had one conference championship season from 26 to 2000. Then they go to the Stag Bowl, 2001. They win the conference every year from 2000, 2005. They're competitive in 06 and, and a little bit beyond that. And they're known locally as a as a powerhouse. 
So funny story from sitting in the stands. I was sitting to next to a Randolph Macon player who had finished his career in 17. So he was two years out. He knew some of the guys on the current team. And we were just talking about um, about the history. And in his mind, Bridgewater is like this huge powerhouse that was that was, uh, oh, you know, had always been good and was super tough to beat. And, and you know, no surprise, they're back to where they are. Uh, and I think for for a lot of us, you know, and you can relate if the conference doormat in your conference is, you know, Howard Payne or Lewis and Clark or Lawrence or River Falls or whoever the doormat is in, in your particular conference. Um, everything goes in cycles. And so eventually uh, that team has its day and, uh, and and Bridgewater is has now cycled back and it does have the same head coach as, as it did in the Stag Bowl year. And it was very satisfying for him to uh, to get back into the playoffs. But mostly, I think it, it comes with a group of kids that uh, you recruit maybe one class and then another class on top of that that's really good and really resilient. Maybe you find yourself a quarterback, which is what happened here at Bridgewater. And then they just kind of grinded out this game uh, on, on Saturday against Randolph making, um, you know, it wasn't particularly beautiful or well played, but they had some, uh, you know, big, big conversions, first downs, a uh, couple of long touchdown runs on uh, on runs up the middle too. Like not like fancy guy takes a sweep and jukes 12 guys, you know, just right up the middle and, and run some people over. So I think Bridgewater is pretty happy to be back where they are. And hopefully this is something that you can, you know, whatever team you follow, you can relate to it. Um, because there's always those programs that uh, you either wonder why they're not better or they had their day and maybe they're they've, they're on a downswing right now. Well, that day comes back. And in Bridgewater's case, that day was Saturday. And I got to talk a little bit to uh, to their quarterback, Jay Scroggins, after the game. Generally, could you tell me what your impression was of Bridgewater when you came here, impression of Bridgewater's history, and then uh, how it feels to, to be going back to the playoffs, although for you, know, for you it's the first time. Right. Um... Yeah, I was very impressed because the, the year that I was at Shepherd, they were an eight and two team, and uh, I knew that they. I think they had, they had lost one game that ended up they were tying or something for the conference championship. So they were on top of the conference championship, and then uh, they had a lot of good players leave then, and and ever since then we've been rebuilding and trying to get back on top of this thing. You saw the potential then. Yeah, definitely. What is it about this team that made it a playoff bound team that you know makes it different from say a you know, five and five team? Uh, a lot of work that we didn't put in. We've been here last year. I know we got a lot of freshmen playing, but we got a lot of experience on this team that people don't think because, I mean, we got a lot of young guys on offense as well, but we got a lot of experience on this team that people don't realize. Is there is there like a like character or something special about you guys all get along? Or? Oh, the camaraderie of this team is great. You know, everybody joking around. We all have fun. It's just... That's our kind of our motto is try to have fun and practice in the games, keep it all fun. But we know we got to come out here and work every day. Right, I know you got one more, but how's it feel to be to be to have a playoff game ahead? Even though you don't know where it is, who you're playing, it's nice to know you got at least two. Yeah, it's great. It's definitely great. We know we got we made it to game 11. That was our big goal, but uh, we still got a lot of work to do. We're gonna enjoy this one tonight, but come back Monday, we won't get back to work. So yeah, that is nine and zero for the Eagles, and they finish off the conference regular season with a home game against Guilford next Saturday. So we've referenced uh, some of the things that happened in Pool C, the at-large pool on Saturday. It got better for a lot of teams, other than some of the specific ones we mentioned. Unless you are, say, a fan of Ithaca or a fan of Baldwin Wallace, things definitely improved in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean RPI beat Ithaca, and now Ithaca, which is still seven and two, they can it can turn around and beat Cortland in the Week Eleven matchup this coming Saturday. Same situation in 
Ohio, where Ohio Northern beat Baldwin Wallace. Baldwin Wallace can turn around and beat John Carroll. That would knock Cortland out of the mix. That would knock John Carroll out of the mix. Trinity beating Birmingham Southern. You brought that up. That means Barry has a path in uh, via the automatic bid and doesn't have to end up in the in the Pool C pool with Birmingham Southern. Uh, previously had a chance to win that conference. Uh, Stevenson beat Wilkes. Wilkes was a one-loss team. Ohio Wesleyan beat Denison. Denison was a one-loss team. And then Bridgewater beating Randolph-Macon. That kept them uh, out of joining Pool C. And the only real bad result for those of you who are backers of teams in, in this Pool C mix is, is Wartburg losing to Central. That puts Wartburg into the discussion. And the Knights do have a chance to get selected out of Pool C. So that does... All these other teams went out of the mix, but one did did join it. And so if you're, a again, a fan of, let's just say, Susquehanna, North Central, Bethel, something like that. Well, actually, I don't, I don't want to say Bethel because Bethel's one of the teams I'm about to mention. But if you're a fan of a team that's in the mix in Pool C, there are four games where a 7-2 and two team is playing an 8-1 team. You want those 7-2 and two teams to knock that 8-1 and one team off. So if St. Thomas beats Bethel, that would knock Bethel out of the mix. Ithaca could beat Cortland. Baldwin Wallace could beat John Carroll. Albion could beat Olivet. That would knock all those teams uh, out of the discussion. And then you want Springfield to beat MIT, which would open the door for WPI to win the new Mac bid and not be 9-1 in the Pool C discussion. Pat, that still leaves a ridiculous number of teams in the mix this coming Saturday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's just a, yeah, talk about uh, some of the teams like Susquehanna we've been talking about for a while. They were at the top of the at-large list in the South region. North Central looking good as the top uh, uh, at-large out of the North. Cortland uh, doesn't have a great strength of schedule. It will go up uh, with when they play Ithaca, but of course they have to win in order for that to be an issue. Uh, Olivet, uh, as we mentioned already with, with, with the one loss, um, I think they're too far down the list to really be a, a factor. Bethel, though, very much in control of its own destiny in Pool C as much as you can be. WPI, very interesting. I think they'll be buried pretty deep in the East Region rankings, but uh, Wesley will be a team that uh, will be a, a formidable Pool C team uh, if they beat Christopher Newport on Saturday. You mentioned John Carroll, Baldwin Wallace. That was almost going to be a Pool C elimination game, and now it's Baldwin Wallace trying to play spoiler. Uh, Redlands with a nice strength of schedule now, but it's going to go down against Occidental. And uh, yeah, it's uh, that is a lot of one loss teams and uh, none of these teams that uh, we have just, Oh, and Warburg, of course. So none of these teams we've just talked about has a path to win their automatic bid anymore, except for WPI. Yeah. And I think there's also one big spoiler uh, out there looming, which is if uh, UW Oshkosh beats Whitewater on Saturday, Whitewater drops into the at-large pool, and they're almost guaranteed to get in. Solid strength of schedule, uh, decent. They don't really have a signature win like they've had had they've had in some previous seasons, but uh, you know, good enough win at least against uh, UW Platteville, and uh, and will have played Oshkosh, which in in this scenario would end up uh, regionally ranked, and so we'll give them results. I think Whitewater's in even with a loss, even if Whitewater wins though, and even if we scratch out. WPI and Olivet, who, as we know, noted, are um, not great with either strength of schedule or wins against regionally ranked opponents. They are current in the current regional rankings, ranked behind teams that will get onto the board, onto the discussion sooner than them. So even if we scratch out Whitewater, WPI, Olivet, still leaves a possible eight teams with really solid credentials for five spots to avoid what's going to be a disaster. Um, for the playoff committee, an unsolvable conundrum. 
need, they just need some teams to lose on Saturday. You know, whether it's Cortland, John Carroll, whoever. You know, right now I think you're looking at North Central, Cortland, John Carroll, Redlands, Wesley, Bethel, Susquehanna, Wartburg. That's eight really, really solid teams with great credentials, and they're mag. You know, they're five spots. Yeah, that doesn't uh, that doesn't bode well. We will do more about this on the website this week. Uh, there will be another regional ranking from the NCAA on Wednesday, and then uh, we will do a mock selection and bracket based off of that. Uh, especially because we have twenty one of the twenty seven automatics in, uh, that will make it a, maybe a, a better potential, uh, you know, project, projected bracket that we could normally do at this time of year. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, and my game ball this week is going to go to Justice Edwards. Edwards is the defensive back for Barry, who suffered a catastrophic injury against center last September. He spent the rest of the fall last year in the hospital. Doctors gave him very little chance of ever walking again, but he walked on Saturday out to the spot on the field at center in Danville, Kentucky, where he got that injury a little over a year ago. A really moving scene with Edwards kind of forcing his way forward in a walker, similar to how uh, we've seen former Luther player Chris Norton work through his rehab from his 2010 injury. Uh, You know, Edwards in this video clip just seems to move from the force of his will. And once once he gets out to the spot, uh, having been cheered on by both Barry and center players and fans, someone gives him a mic, you, Jay. Uh, and then he addresses the crowd. And thankfully, there was a camera there to capture all of this. Here is some of Edwards' remarks. First off, I thank y'all from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I remember landing this exact spot last year, right when it happened, and I, I told my coach, God got me. Just believe I'm coming back on this walk That's exactly what God allowed me to do a year and some days afterwards. I got a scripture from y'all that says, For those who hope in the Lord and wait on the Lord, you will renew their strength. They will soar up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. All right, obviously a little bit of uh, today, today, I consider myself, myself, reverb going through the stadium. So uh, it's uh, the... The verse he was quoting was from Isaiah 40:31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Just an amazing, inspirational story for this young man. And I look forward to seeing how he continues to come back from this injury and you know, live his life now going forward. Yeah, and I don't know if there are people out there like me who get a little uncomfortable seeing these scenes because they're stark reminders that football is a dangerous game and these sort of injuries happen. And that's not what any of the players or what you are, are celebrating here. You're just celebrating the the man's strength to uh, to continue on and to, to fight back and to maybe, right, you know, to regain, regain some strength 
and the, and the ability to walk when it looked really bad. But there's definitely, um, I'm sure, people out there who, um, who you know, you feel conflicted when you see this because it's, um, it's horrible and it's amazing at the same time. Yeah. In any case, uh, my game ball uh, certainly not nearly as uh, as gut wrenching as uh, as yours, but uh, it goes to to Hunter Robinson and anyone on the central central Dutch sideline that kept their cool and their belief uh, after coughing up the 49-14 lead, falling behind 56-49 in overtime, and then to come back and win it by going for two. What a set of cojones to make that call, but you have to have players and a team confident enough to execute it. Longtime pod listeners know I don't subscribe to the go for two on the road, kick it at home theory. It comes down to whether you think your team can win in another overtime period, in which case it benefits you maybe to, to try to play on. Uh, how your kicker's been kicking, Right. Maybe it been, may if your kicker's shaky, then you don't want to kick it and go for two anyway. But most importantly, I think it, it comes down to how much you love your two point play. You know, does it always work in practice? Have you been holding it in your back pocket for weeks? And when you get it lined up, do you suddenly freak out and want to call timeout? Uh, and then it works anyway. So it, it just would have been so easy for Central to fold there because the, the boulder starts coming downhill against you. And, you, you, you know, you realize even before you fall behind. Oh man, we're going to lose this game. Oh, we could lose this game, and for for it just takes so much, um, you know, internal strength to to remember that uh, you have a chance to win. And instead of having that go down as an all time choke job, it instead becomes one of the great games in Central history, one of the great games in D three history, and basically leaves us with our own personal Plano East. Got a crease! Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! my god! Oh my gosh! No! Come on! No! I love using that drop. Thank you for uh, thank you for referencing that. We will rise. We will rise. We will rise. My team on the rise in the d3football.com top 25 and on my ballot is Linfield. I've been on the record as saying that I was waiting for this week's game to see if the Wildcats deserve to be moved up on my ballot. And this week's gutty overtime victory uh, leads me to put Linfield at number 16. And yes, that means Redlands at 15. Uh, The Wildcats leapt out to a 21-7 lead before Whitworth scored the next 24 points. Listen, like Wyatt Smith didn't make all the best decisions behind center for Linfield on Saturday, but he made enough of them. And Artie Johnson did some really hard running, ending up with uh, 97 yards on 22 carries. That's good enough for me to move them up my ballot. I've been kind of holding back, and now I'm responding. Well, uh, for my riser, to be honest with you, seemed like everyone in the top 10 or 15 was in make a statement mode. 51-3, 41-3, 55-6, 62-20, 69-14, 70-0. You get the picture. And some of these scores came against pretty good teams. So the movement in this poll, if any, would happen, would have to happen lower. For me, it was Middlebury cracking the top 20 after finishing its season 9-0. Any other unbeaten team with a similar profile of players would be getting more attention. But because the NESCAC essentially goes inside and won't play with the other kids, not only will we never know what this year's Panthers would have done in a playoff game, we'll never know where they accurately should have ranked. Still, Congrats on a year of nail biters and victories, Middlebury. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. Taking a fall this week in the top 25, definitely without style, is Ithaca. Uh, I mentioned earlier, just been a cluster of the past two weeks for the Bombers heading into this Cortica Jug game. They're going to go from seventh in the country to more like seven overall votes all the way out. And when you go, you know, you go down by four touchdowns against RPI on Saturday in the, you know, in the style of which they did, then you kind of go back and like, what is, 
Yeah, what, what is the actual Ithaca profile, right? They beat St. Vincent to begin the season. St. Vincent, not a contender in the pack. Uh, they beat Alfred. Alfred's got three losses right now. They struggled to beat St. John Fisher, as I know they were not the only team that did that. Um, they shut out Hobart, uh, which was is probably now their most impressive win. Hobart is, of course, a team that is 7-2 uh, and two, uh, with, and probably going to go 8-2 and two as they play Rochester to end it out. But, uh, you know, Ithaca's going from a, a, a team that people could have had a reasonable expectation that they might play well in a national semifinal, maybe even get to the Stag Bowl. And now out of the top 25, for all intents and purposes, out of the playoffs, just a crazy couple of weeks. Ithaca dropping out, obviously, uh, Texas Lutheran dropping out as well. Brockport and Central had their opportunity to play into the poll this week. Well, for me to find a team to take a fall actually was pretty difficult because for all the carnage in the Pool C picture, Saturday was pretty uneventful top 25-wise. The only other team besides Ithaca on my ballot that lost was Wartburg, and it was just a matter of swapping their spot with Central's and doing some slight housekeeping on my ballot. This was not a massive ballot rearrangement weekend for me, but unfortunately, after a neck-and-neck game between eight and one teams, I did not have Central previously ranked because of their 28-7 midseason loss to Dubuque. But now that the Spartans have six wins, and that looks like merely a bad day for Central, I found the Dutch a little bit lower in the top 25 than I'd had Wartburg. And even though it could have easily won on Saturday, there was no top 25 spot for me to slot Wartburg into after the one-point loss. Luckily for them, the playoff selection committee does not care what we, the pollsters, do. Venturing a little further afield for uh, Off the Beaten Path, and it's to Dallas. Pennsylvania, where Albright finally snapped its losing streak at 19 games and defeated Misericordia by the score of 20 to 10. Albright, which has lost two one-score games this season and like a whole host of five and six-score games, uh, has been really dragging down the strength of schedule for Mary Harden-Baylor and for Salisbury. Albright, however, on Saturday scored the first 20 points of the game. Misery averaged or, or answered with a touchdown in the closing minutes of the first half and scored again to open the second half, but that was it. Albright held Brady Williams, the Misericordia starting quarterback, to 13 of 36 passing and just 121 yards and got off the schneid. They win 20 to 10. Well, I'm not sure how much of mine is highlight, but it's well off the beaten path since Wilmington had one win coming in and Capital was looking to get off, off the schneid as well. Uh, Capital barely scored any points, much less won a game, and they gave Wilmington a game on Saturday, uh, losing 41-34. Uh, Wilmington actually took a, 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 a 41-20 lead in that one, so it wasn't nearly as close as the final score made it seem. But Capital did score two touchdowns in the fourth quarter. And remember, two touchdowns, period, is a big deal for this Capital team. Um, and to score two in the fourth quarter, the second one came on a 48-yard touchdown pass with 3.14 left, gave him a chance to uh, to try to onside kick and, uh, and get the ball back to win a game. And uh, that didn't happen for them. But for Capital, a uh, program that's 0-9 this season, had, had lost three games by shutout midseason to John Carroll, Mountain Union, Ohio Northern, uh, gave up something like 210, 15 points in the process uh, of those three games. And their first four games, they hadn't, uh, they'd scored 27 points. So up until last week uh, against Otterbein, when, when they put up 18, and this week they put up 34, you know, Capital is looking a little better and maybe has a chance to knock off Muskingum in, uh, in week 11 here. It's just a reminder that there are games at the other end of the spectrum uh, with, you know, Muskingum at two and seven. Uh, they're also a team that's looking for an opportunity to just get another W. Uh, they beat Waynesburg earlier in the year and then they beat Wilmington. 
there are going to be a lot of games on Saturday that we spend a lot of time focusing on because of their playoff implications, because of their big rivalry games. There are also games like uh, like uh, when Capital and Wilmington play, or when Capital and Muskingum play, where some team, and and I, I say this because I feel like it's our future Bridgewater. Um, some team is just looking to get make a step in the right direction, head into the offseason on a high note, t- have something they can take on the recruiting trail so they can build, build, build. And we've seen it happen enough times, Pat, over our 20-some-odd years where some program that was downtrodden finally gets a little something going. Maybe they get to five wins, then they get to nine, or they might take them a couple more, they, some steps along the way to four, to six, to seven, to ten. But we've seen it happen enough times, Pat, where uh, – where you root for teams that are that are really hitting rock bottom because from that point, the only place to go is up. Surprise! My most surprising result from Saturday comes in uh, Maritime losing to Alfred State by the score of 21 to 17. Surprising, actually, it's not super surprising, but here's the reason why I kind of need to talk about it is because this is uh, SUNY Maritime, the team which clinched second place and the automatic bid in the ECFC last weekend, uh, giving up 14 unanswered points in the fourth quarter and falling to four and five. And they're going to play Mount St. Joseph, which is a seven and two team on Saturday. They are very likely going to go into the NCAA playoffs at four and six. I figure I need to start mentioning this now because I know that we will be seeing lots of complaints about this on Twitter. How come this four and six team is in the playoffs and... I don't know, your Baldwin Wallace, your Emery and Henry. I had an Emery and Henry uh, person complain already this morning, and the season isn't even over. Um, it is the nature of automatic bids and that, you know, you see this like in the Division One men's basketball tournament because someone has to win a tournament to get into the postseason. And you might occasionally do that as a team that's under 500. It has never happened in the Division Three football playoffs, and it is about to. So I'm just letting you guys know now. So you give them no chance of of beating Mount St. Joseph, a team that scored 76, by the way, on Saturday. I mean, I just know that uh, MSJ had bigger plans for this season, and they're uh, I'm sure they're pretty disappointed. They were talking, they were complaining about not being in the top 25 through seven games or something like that, or six games or whatever it was. So I know that they thought that they were better than the way they're going to end up, and they're not going to want to go seven and three. They're going to want to go eight and two. Yeah, I was just giving you a hard time. I, I think that's the right call. And look, this is this is bad for G3. It, it's it's yeah. pretty semi-indefensible. This whole thing is a travesty and a sham and a mockery. It's a travesty sham mockery. No making up words. I mean, the the way you you explain it is it's a uh, it's a conference that lost a couple teams, and so it's down uh, and has one transitional team, and so you're not you're not really dealing with a full seven, eight, ten team conference. Um, and so the champion uh, in this case ha- has to be somebody that um, that's going to end up with four wins. Uh, it's I mean it's bad. There's no there's no universe in which we would not rather, unless you're a SUNY Maritime backer, where we would not rather see whichever team gets left out of this Pool C mix, whether it's Susquehanna or you know Wartburg or North Central or John Carroll. There's no universe in which we would not rather see that team play Mount Union or somebody like that in round one than this. But this is the 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 way the system is built to reward automatic qualifiers, and it's going to be tougher and tougher as we go along to realize or to deal with deal with the facts as an at-large team. If you're a nine and one or a really strong eight and two, 
Um, you're going to be looking every year at, at a team in the in the postseason that didn't play as schedule as tough as you, that didn't necessarily do as well as you, but won its conference, and that's how it got into the postseason. So uh, the surprising result from from this past week is that Maritime lost a, a winnable game because this one coming up on on Saturday against Mount St. Joe's, the non-conference game, uh, does not look like a good matchup for them, and we may have a 4-6 and six team in the postseason. Mm-hmm. For my most surprising result, besides RPI putting a foot in Ithaca, which we dealt with at the top of the podcast, I thought when Southwest came roaring out of the gates to the, the tunes of 97-10 over its first two wins combined over Sewanee and Louisiana College, there was a thought that maybe this year the Pirates would be in the mix in the American Southwest. Meantime, middle of the season, Howard Payne had lost five straight and was headed towards basically where it usually ends up, which is uh, and between 2015, 2016, 2017, Howard Payne won two games and, uh, and wasn't a whole lot better um, last season. Well, they turned it around the past couple of weeks. They won uh, against Sol Ross State, and then they beat Southwestern 24-16. And so that's one of the ones where if you are just scrolling and you're, you're like, oh, I thought Howard Payne was terrible. They, they've won three games the past four seasons. Well, they're at four and five right now, a chance to get to five and five next week uh, at Bellhaven. And for Southwestern, again, a team that was came roaring out of the gates and thought maybe they would get close to, uh, to challenging. They are now down at four and five, and because they finish at Harden Simmons, chance to finish four and six. So we've learned this many times. You can say it with regard to Ithaca or with regard to Brockport or with regard to many other teams across the country. Don't get too excited with what you see early in the season because it's an 11-week trek. For some teams, it's a 16-week trek, and the the last final chapters have yet to be written. Hot off the ticker, my stat of the week is basically anything from the FDU Florham Alvernia game, a game in which FDU broke five school records, and, and I'm sure Alvernia uh, broke a bunch because its program is only 19 games old. Alvernia definitely scored the most points it has ever scored. It scored 58 points on Saturday, but Alvernia gave up 84. Yeah, FDU Florham's crazy offense laden year ended with an 84 point outburst. Tommy Galanti, the quarterback, led the way for the Devils, throwing for 345 yards and six touchdowns. He ran for 60 yards. Uh, he ran for a touchdown. He caught a touchdown pass on the day. And uh, FDU Florham gave up an average of 43.2 points per game this season, and they finished 3-7, and seven, but they certainly had a memorable finish with an 84-58 win against Alvernia. Hey, FDU might lead the nation in podcast mentions per win. Like the average ratio, whatever, because they have certainly been a star in uh, an off the beaten path and stat of the week. For my stat of the week, it goes to our aforementioned Mount St. Joseph, which scored 11 touchdowns in a win against Anderson. That was a 76-46 win, so not quite as cool as your 84-pointer, but uh, right up there. Mount St. Joseph scored 11 touchdowns, including five times when it took either only one play offensively or one special teams play. Um Mount St. Joseph also got outgained 688 to 485 in that game, partially because some of their, their yardage came on those two special teams touchdowns. But uh, I think it's just amazing to see uh, to see nine offensive touchdowns, a punt return touchdown, and a kick return touchdown in the game for, uh, for MSJ. That's a team that's, uh, yeah, looking forward to next week to make its statement because it's not going to the postseason and the team it potentially beats next week We'll have a game the following week. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. 
<laughs> now is the time on the podcast where we go to Twitter. We take your questions on the Twitter machine uh, for our Sunday night recording sessions, our Sunday afternoon recording sessions headed in to our Monday podcast. You know, those are the podcasts with the even numbers if you're uh, listening to them out of order or on some sort of delayed basis. And the question for this particular podcast comes from Alex Nisvisky, who is at AL underscore NEZ, asking, could you see the committee giving Case Western Reserve a road playoff game due to SOS and a somewhat up and down quality of wins despite regional rank and assuming they win next week, a 10-0 and record? That's a really good question. Of course, uh, Case uh, entered the week with a 477 SOS and ranked fifth in the South region. Their SOS drops this week to 440, uh, but uh, because they played Waynesburg and they will bounce back up a little bit with a game against Carnegie Mellon in week 11. Yeah, I love this question as well. And I think part of the reason is um, because it's a good reminder for everyone out there, not just Case Western Reserve fans, to separate the two things. One, getting the, the field of 32 put together, and we'll spend a ton of time talking about the five at-large teams. But once those teams are in the field, it doesn't matter how you got in. Does it doesn't mean, uh, as you talked about uh, earlier with someone, just because Brockport gets in as an uh, automatic bid, and let's just say Cortland gets in, you still could look at Cortland hosting Brockport. And that's just, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's just a, an example of something that could happen. I think in case Western Reserve's case, though, not only could it be set on the road, but because of its geographic placement, because it's a North region team that has proximity to teams in the South region in Pennsylvania and teams in the East region, if you go to upstate New York, depending on on how you, how what part of New York that's in, you know, from 500 miles to Cleveland actually can get you pretty, pretty far into the east and pretty far into what's the south region in D3, even though it's not considered the south colloquially. Case Western Reserve could go any number of places. And they're one of the teams that that the committee will love because it can give that bracket a lot of flexibility. And so um, if you're a fan, just be happy that your team's in there. It's certainly great to see um, games at home especially that second playoff week where uh, a lot of the student body will go home for Thanksgiving and the, the, the fans in the, the home city will, uh, will have an opportunity to, to root the team on. Those are all great, but I mean, it's, the committee's going to be looking at all kinds of nine and one teams with good wins over other teams, great strength of schedule. And so if you don't have one of those two things, you're almost definitely going on the road, even if you're undefeated. I just have to clarify something Keith said. A Case Western Reserve is a South Region team with proximity to North Region teams. These, uh, they, they are in the South because, even though they're in Cleveland, because the pack is in the South. But Case Western Reserve played at Illinois Wesleyan in the playoffs a couple of years ago. That's a really good example of how far west they could go. And from Cleveland, you could get as far east as New Jersey or something like that. There's a, a lot of potential places that Case could go. Case was fifth in the South region rankings, as we mentioned, coming into the week. I don't see them moving up. Everybody ahead of them won. And Case already has a, a really low SOS that got lower. So I think that uh, you know Case is definitely in... On one of those tweener spots, they could be a four or a five seed, so they could be hosting an evenly matched game. They could be traveling to an evenly matched game. At least, you know, if they win on Saturday, you don't expect them to go to Mount Union. Uh, I don't expect them to go to Wheaton, that sort of thing. At least it should be in position for them to get a good game, but probably on the road. And those are the ones that that any any middle 
good program, right? Be like a middle of the of the playoff pack program really likes those games. You know, you just have a chance to uh to to get a playoff win. So yeah, it could be right as far west as Illinois, far east as you know, say Delaware or New Jersey, uh New York, Pennsylvania, so many things in play. My last thought before we head out the door, final word, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Cortica Jug game. Uh, Keith already mentioned uh, the Dutchman shoes between RPI and Union. Um, also, you know, just so we're going to be spending a lot of time that we haven't forgotten somehow about the Monon Bell game, uh, which is another obviously a big game. Wabash has already clinched. It's automatic qualifier, but that's another one of the great rivalry games in Division Three that will be played on Saturday. We know it'll be played at DePauw because Wabash is like tearing down its stadium and breaking ground on something brand new that will be open by uh, next September. So that'll be fun to watch. But that's also a great game for uh, people to keep an eye on on Saturday if you want to see another one of the great Division Three rivalries take place between DePauw and Wabash. And how amazing is it that there were five teams in the mix in the North Coast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, that one got sorted out before week 11. We thought almost definitely that uh, that DePaul would have a chance to knock Wabash out of the playoffs so that Wabash would be on the outside looking in, and turns out uh, it has already clinched. While we're mentioning rivalries, we should mention that the longest played rivalry in Division III um, took place on this past Saturday, Another installment of the biggest little game in America. Williams back on top against Amherst. Amherst finish, finishes four and five. Literally cannot remember the last time uh, Amherst did not have a winning record. I also cannot remember the last time Knox had a good bronze turkey game against Monmouth. Uh, that's a program that has been and also ran for a long time in the Midwest Conference. And Monmouth is now, um, I believe, right? That Monmouth is in that, that week 11 play-in game. In, uh, in the MWC. That's right. They'll be playing St. Norbert for the Midwest Conference title. Also still to be determined, the ARC Championship, the uh, new Mac yet to be determined, the SAA is still hanging out there, the USA South and the WIAC. So those are the six automatic qualifiers yet to come. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 258, season 13, episode 20, released on November 11th of 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout this week. If you like our podcast, this is the way you like podcasts, right? You uh, rate it in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. That's where uh, anywhere you get a podcast is going to have one of those options, and that will help other football fans find it. You can also leave comments on a particular episode on our blog page. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. You can even reach out to complain about not being selected, but we are not the people who make that decision. Uh, we have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and some of the other music we use in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, and you can find more of his work at djmentos.com. Thanks to our guest, Jay Scroggins, for his time in this edition of our show. And, of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Hey, man, I'm feeling sensational. And... DJ Mentos has new work out. He just put a new uh, new album out on Friday. I didn't even realize it was happening. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.